Hi, I'm Kara Oakleaf. And I'm Susie Rigdon. You're listening to the Fall for the Book podcast, part of the Watershed Lit Station. Each season, we sit down with writers from across the genre spectrum, so subscribe on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit fallforthebook.org to find out more. Today, we are talking to Janice Northerns, who was born in West Texas and lives in in Kansas now. And one thing that we're going to be asking her about, Kara, is sort of the influence of the land, this wide open space on her writing. And it strikes me that you and I living in suburbia outside of DC, there's not much of that. So I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experiences in the wide open and maybe how that's shaped you as a writer, or given you a way to maybe reconsider your writing. Yeah. You know, uh, looking at a lot of, a lot of her poems that are concerned with that, I kept thinking about when I had just gotten out of college, my, my, my husband and I, then, then my boyfriend, we took a road trip from Ohio to Salt Lake city to help a friend of ours who we'd been in college with move a bunch of her stuff home. She was back in, in Salt Lake and and so we took uh, a few days to just drive across the country. And I will never forget being on the highway with just like flatness everywhere around you. Just like how, how wide open the spaces were, um, what, what a completely empty night sky looked like. I, I loved that trip. And, um, and, you know, even though we were essentially some broke college students staying in Motel 6s, um, it was a really fun way to experience like the wide open spaces of of the West that I never really gotten to do before. Yeah, you know, I I think about my suburban Maryland neighborhood, and uh, there's not a lot of sky here. You see little glimpses. Um, I might see some colored clouds at at sunset, but when my family goes to Maine, there's a lot of sky up there, and watching the sunset is is an event. It becomes an event every night after dinner, going out and watching the sunset, and that's just not something you can really do here. And, and like you, after college, I, I went with some friends, we, we road tripped from, from Kansas city, Missouri to uh, Boulder. And one of the things aside from the ginormously wide supermarket aisles, which just absolutely blew my mind, um, just the absolute space and, you know, approaching Colorado, the mountains, and then seeing a thunderstorm miles off. And that is just not something that you see around here. And I, I loved it because one, it was just cool. And now it makes me think of this book by Jonathan Stutzman, The Night is for Darkness. It's a it's a picture book and they drive from Minnesota to their new home. And it's just something that you don't see. And so it makes you feel small. It makes you really like think about yourself in a way that you just can't do in a suburb of <laughs> outside of DC. Um, exactly. When you're maybe focused more on the traffic. Yeah. Well, and, and like you, like you said, being able to watch a storm from the distance, that was one of the things that happened to us is, uh, as we, we were able to, we saw tornadoes like miles and miles away. And it was the strangest experience because even like growing up in Ohio, like we had tornadoes and tornado warnings all the time, but I'd never seen anything like that, like being able to watch something like that from a distance. And it really is, does give you this, this totally different sense of perspective. And I think that's what's really nice about reading regional literature. Mm-hmm. There's a very different flavor to Western literature uh, or literature set in the West or the South or, you know, and just like you would read a novel set in another country to get a flavor of that country. It's like, you know, the great open spaces in the language um, that you're experiencing through poetry or a novel or short stories. I just... 
I find it really spectacular. So I'm, I'm so excited to talk to Janice Northerns today. Janice Northerns is the author of Some Electric Hum, winner of the Byron Caldwell Smith Book Award from the University of Kansas, the Nelson Poetry Book Award, and a Willow Literary Award finalist in poetry. Welcome, Janice. Thanks for talking with us today. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So I wanted to ask a little bit about your background. You grew up on uh, a farm in rural West Texas. I'm really curious about what that was like and and what stands out in your memory about that place. Isolation. (laughs) We were out (laughs) in the middle of nowhere. There wasn't a lot to do. And I I think that probably had a profound effect on my writing um, because I spent a lot of time just wandering around. I had four brothers, but I mean, we played together sometimes, but a lot of times I was just on my own. I did a lot of reading, which obviously informed my writing. But also I felt like the school I went to was 30 miles away and we went to church 30 miles in a different direction. So I felt disconnected sort of from both of those worlds, sort of like an outsider. And that also affected my writing. When you would wander around, it it seems from, from your poetry that a lot of that time was just spent thinking about nature or we, you know, we really found that your poems are infused with the land, the dust and grit and heat. Can you talk a little bit about your relationship to nature and, and how you approach weaving that into your work? I think I have a closer relationship to nature than I did when I was growing up. To be honest, I didn't really appreciate it at the time, but after I moved away, we moved to Kansas about 20 years ago, I found that when I went back home, I really missed that landscape. And I think that's often true. As an adult, you appreciate things that you didn't realize were informing your life when you were a child. So it was all there and it was influencing me. But to be honest, when I was growing up, most of the time I was just wishing I was somewhere else, (laughs) which I think is true of a lot of kids. Absolutely. For, for those of us who haven't been to rural West Texas, can you tell us a little bit about the landscape and, and the type of things that you encountered? It is flat. It is very dry. It's very arid where I was. I mean, there, East Texas is forest and water and beautiful. West Texas is pretty desert-like. Um, I wasn't in far West Texas, but still there were mesquite trees. That was about the only trees. Very windy. Uh, And again, we lived on a farm. There were some neighbors, but basically just out in the middle of nowhere. So a lot of prickly pear cactus, a lot of rattlesnakes, just, you know, and, and I spent a lot of time just wandering around looking for, you know, I I expected to find something exciting and it, it wasn't ever there, although it really was. It just took me to be an adult later to realize that. Like Susie was saying, a lot of your poems have this really strong uh, relationship to nature. A, a lot of your other work also touches on some really difficult personal and family topics. Like thinking about your ex-husband's death, the, the dissolution of that marriage, um, your grandparents. Um, there are some really striking moments with your daughter as well. And I'm, I'm curious how you approach writing such, such personal moments. Does it feel like an act of healing to you? Or, or how do you just approach writing those poems? It's definitely a way for me to process events maybe and and kind of understand what was important to me about those events. Um, I mentioned that I I grew up pretty isolated and also I I don't know if we want to get into this but I'll just go ahead and get into it. I mean the I, I grew up in a fundamentalist religion and so that had a lot to do with why I married early and why the marriage didn't work out. I I had the feeling that there's nothing else to do but get married. So I did that. And so I didn't go to college until later in life. 
Instead, I just got married, had kids. I sort of did it all backwards. So in some ways, I felt like I had done everything in the wrong order. And so writing was a way to sort of sort that out and figure out what was what. And, and it did, I mean, it helped me a lot. Did you write, was this an ongoing process writing throughout this journey? Or did you find yourself after a lot of this happening, looking back and sort of writing from a reflective place? I wrote, as I said, I went to college later in my, I was in my early thirties and that's when I actually start write, started writing. So, and that was actually quite some time ago. So I wrote a lot then, processed a lot then. And then I think like many other women, I sort of put that aside for a while. I was raising children. Uh, I had a really demanding job. We moved. Um, well, and I, I mean, there was a divorce and then a new relationship. So I had a lot of things going on. And to be honest, I didn't write a whole lot for 20 years. And then I picked it up again um, about seven or eight years ago. So the, the book covers really a long span of time. I wondered if you could uh, possibly read a poem for us now. One of the ones that we were looking at was, was Fireflies. This uh, poem was actually inspired a few years ago by a trip to Palo Duro Canyon. And this is actually one of the things that sparked my interest in writing again. I had come to a place in my life where I actually had some time to write. The kids were gone. And it also sparked my interest in appreciating and understanding the landscape, I think. So the poem is set in Palo Duro Canyon, which is in North Texas. Uh, it's really a pretty amazing canyon. It's not nearly as well known as Grand Canyon, but it's a, a really cool place if you ever get a chance to go there. It was also part of the Comanche area, which was a huge uh, area that was controlled by the Comanches in the 1800s. So it has that history. And one thing that comes up in the poem is the Battle of Palo Duro, which was the beginning of the end for the Comanches. So my husband and I were camping on the canyon floor, and all of this history just felt very present to me. Uh, I felt like we were all at the same place, and the only thing separating us was time, and it just had a really powerful impact on me. Fireflies. The past feels thicker here on the canyon floor, ancient air filtering down. History hangs over our heads as ancestral sin slows our steps. In 1874, troops routed Comanches at the Battle of Palo Duro. Repeating rifles dropped Appaloosas and paints, 1,400, one by one. Each whinnying scream echoed through this canyon as sun-stenched flesh stacked ladders to heaven. The bleached bones, later a landmark guiding whites through grasslands. Those bones are long gone, but as darkness falls, the fireflies come out. Their cold glow, the same light that flickered witness above Comanche campsites. I step soft among fireflies, the ground beneath me, a palimpsest of conquest, buffalo blood and steaming scalps, gutted treaties, barbed wire, paved roads to annihilation. The past pulses underfoot, but the fireflies leave no mark. Like flint sparking flame, they glimmer for the living and the dead, glowing ghosts of moon white bones. Oh, that's amazing. Um, and I, I'm, I'm so curious about, about, about visiting a place like this now. It is. Um, it's amazing. And again, it's a lesser known canyon, although it's pretty busy. I mean, you need to make reservations ahead of time, but you can definitely feel 
a sense of the past. Again, when you're you're down on the canyon floor, especially at night, there wasn't there were some other people camped, but we couldn't see anybody. And it was like it was just us and the past, to be honest. And then the fireflies. And I really did just think about the fireflies as witnessing witnessing all of this over generations. I think that's so interesting. You know, Thought for the Book is based right outside of DC and there's not a lot of space out here to think or space to be alone. And, and, you know, thinking about being out West and just being in these grand spaces by yourself and just thinking about um, the past, it's really something that unless we travel, we don't have access to. So that's really wonderful. And I loved your line, the past pulses underfoot. You know, this is not the only poem where you are working with the past or examining the past. You know, I'm thinking of other poems like Invasive Species and, and a number of others. And so you have this experience that you're working with and your connection to the land. Is there other kind of research that you do into this or um, that you focused on in your work? Not especially for this book, but I the second collection of poetry that I'm working on right now is based a lot on, or I'm going to say it's inspired in part by this trip we took to Palo Duro Canyon. So I got really interested in the Comanches and in particular in an event that happened, the Comanches kidnapped a little Texan girl at age nine and she stayed with them for 24 years. And then the Texas Rangers kidnapped her back. So I'm writing about her. I'm writing about the Comanches and also about my past because I grew up in land that these people inhabited before my family came along. So it's just really fascinating to me to think about being in that same area, the idea of land ownership, westward expansion, what to the Native Americans, all of that I'm working on in the second book. And I am doing quite a bit of research on that. So it's a little bit different direction than uh, my first collection. And what you're talking about here that's so fascinating is this change over time, change of community, change over land. So you do this on the grand scale that you're talking about in, say, fireflies, and then other maybe more specific cases. You got the poem Wildcatter in Dry County, which is talking about the oil going away and the rise of church culture. But then you also have those deeply personal poems like Plate Tectonics that chronicles the birth and death of your first marriage. So how do you approach writing like this and chronicling that change in time? Wow, that is a great question. I... I don't know that I have a unified approach or method. It's a just something kind of speaks to me and I start writing about it. I mean, and sometimes it turns into a poem and sometimes it doesn't. I mean, you, you are both writers, you know, not all your ideas pan out. So, I mean, I just start with something and see where it goes. Uh, and, and again, a lot of it is rooted in the landscape, which I never would have guessed when I was growing up. I mean, you don't know. You don't know what's affecting you sometimes, but one thing I, I know as a writer is that pretty much every experience I've had obviously has influenced me in some way. Even the bad things, um, they're part of who I am, and those experiences are not wasted. They're part of your life, and they come out in my writing. And I think it's always interesting to think about the things that you had no idea were influencing you at the time, and it's only something that comes up you know, years later as you're writing. Um, mm-hmm. I also wanted to shift gears a little bit and ask you about uh, about language and style. I think this is, uh, Susie and I are both prose writers and we always find this really interesting when we talk to, to poets. 
but a lot of your your poems feel like we're 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 sitting around having a conversation over a cup of coffee. Um, there, it feels like a like a like a very intimate conversation. And I I was curious about your approach to to, to language and style. I would say my poetry is quite narrative, which I think is what you're picking up on. I mean, is a lot of them do tell a story. So that's pretty important to me as a writer. And I don't know that I consciously um, adopted that, but that's just the way they come out. I do also try to focus a lot on sound because it's a poem. And obviously, and if you're writing a poem, it also has to be pared down to just the essence. So the, the words are very important. I am not big on formal poetry or the, there are a couple of Sestinas in the book, but I like using rhyme and sound, but not necessarily in a formal way. I feel like a Sestina is maybe the most challenging thing you could possibly try for somebody who's not really interested in formal poetry. (laughs) I don't know. I mean, I just, I think I did it mostly just to see, oh, let me just try this and, you know, see what happens. And so I, I got a couple of, I feel like, good ones out of it. I've tried some other forms and they haven't worked out as well. They're not in the book. (laughs) (laughs) Who, who are some of your, uh, your influences, uh, or, or even some other writers that you're, um, that you're really interested in reading right now? So in the past, and probably this book was influenced a lot by my mentor, the late Walt McDonald. Um, he may not be that well-known on a national scale, but he's published, I'm going to say probably close to 30 books. And he was, um, an instructor at Texas Tech when I was working on my master's degree in creative writing there. And he writes very much about the landscape and the Texas landscape. So that was a huge influence on my formation as a poet. These days, I find myself reading almost exclusively women poets. And that wasn't a conscious choice on my part. That is just who I feel like is speaking my language. I really like Diane Seuss. She is just writing amazing stuff. Tracy Brimhall, who is a professor at Kansas State, she has a wonderful book called Come the Slumberless to the Land of Nod. She's amazing. Martha Solano. So uh, Dana Levin, I could go on and on. But again, I, I just, it's not that I'm not reading male poets. It's just that these are the poems that are really, I don't know, getting, getting to the heart of what I think is important right now. I'm glad you were talking about, you know, your, your MFA experience. And then you've also done some teaching as well. And so we wanted to shift gears sort of near the end of the interview and ask you to read a poem from the collection called Freshman Composition for us, please. Okay. Yes. As you mentioned, um, I taught for a number of years. I think many writers have to do something else to pay the bills and often teaching is the day job, but it it works well with writing because often you're teaching writing, which I was uh, in this job. So when this poem takes place, it was in my very very first semester of teaching. I was a a teaching assistant at Texas Tech University. So I was a little bit older, but I really hadn't had a lot of teaching experience. And what really stood out to me about this experience is that I had a birth and a death occur in the same semester. And as a teacher, I think we often think our class is the most important thing going on in these students' lives. And this is just a really strong reminder that it was not. I mean, students have other issues going on and and your class is often secondary. Freshman composition. 
Cynthia turns her work in on time all semester, though in October, her mother slips into a coma for two and a half essays, then dies. I clip the obituary and slide it into her hands the same morning that LaShondra brings her baby to class. The rest of us, homogenous and white, stumble over the baby's name, Ijai. LaShondra repeats it three times, like an incantation, finally writes it on the board. The name means strong African warrior. He wakes, and I dance him around the room in his baby gap sleeper and tiny red Nikes, calm his cries by reviewing comma splices. Oh, look, you've bored him back to sleep. We all laugh, but inside, I fear it's the one true comment for the semester. Power suited in beige and black, once I was sure I could make a difference. But as his mother struggles over one more C paper, one that will still lack development and organization, I wonder if I've cheated her of early morning lullabies and given nothing she needs in return. Or if Cynthia resents hours spent on those first papers while her mother's death hovered, unexpected as a pop quiz. And what of the other 24 who've shared this bare tiled room for 13 weeks? They write and write while I, with my back turned, scribble revision tips on the board, a chalky scrawl erased with a slam of a classroom door. Thank you. I think especially, I know this was published in, in 2017, so prior to the, the COVID pandemic, but you raised so many important questions here, um, you know, about this balance of life and education and, and power and learning and sort of the, what's the point in the face of some of these larger questions? And it's something that teachers have to ask themselves all the time. Um, so how do you manage it? How, how did you approach these questions, especially after a semester like that? I think as a teacher, you learn a lot from your students. And the, this was a powerful lesson for me. So I still, I think one thing my students often said about me was my class was really hard, but they learned a lot. So I felt like I kept my expectations high, but you cannot ever forget that human element of it. If there was a student that was genuinely having some kind of problem, I, I tried to work with them and and you obviously have to find out something about your students to be able to do that. They need to be able to feel like they can come tell you something is going on. So it is not an easy balance to strike. Uh, I'll say that. And you do you you both teach? Yes. Do, yeah. 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 Um, so you, you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> absolutely. Especially especially these last couple of years. Do, do you find that you, you were talking before you read the poem about how um, teaching often goes well with writing because you're you're teaching writing. And I've I've always found that that true, too, that that, that what you're doing in a writing class so often will influence your own work. Do you find that as well? Yeah, I, I, I'm trying to think. I mean, teaching freshman composition, of course, is quite a bit different thing than teaching creative writing. So probably more of an overlap when I was teaching creative writing. Uh, freshman composition, because they're in some cases sometimes not that motivated to write. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you're really focusing a lot on the basics. But I did also teach creative writing. And yes, there's a lot of overlap there. I mean, we'd be reading things in class or working on things. And I would think, oh, I need to go do this or that or work on this poem. Of course, when you're teaching, you often don't have that much time to write yourself. That's the drawback. That's the other side of balancing all of it. Yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> well, Janice, thank you so much for talking with us today. It's been a pleasure. Oh, I thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you so much for the opportunity.
The Fall for the Book podcast is produced by Susie Rigdon as a part of Watershed Lit. For more episodes, you can follow us on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. Fall for the Book is a nonprofit literary arts organization, and you can find more information about our programs and events at fallforthebook.org. Read on.